Right, so I'm, I'm going to speak about public broadcasting and, and politicization in, in post-apartheid South Africa, and really just a kind of about a, a part of my research, which is mainly empirical, so I'm not going to throw much theory at you, also because I was kind of expecting a mixed group of, of academics and practitioners. Um, it's not the whole picture, really, um, that you are getting, but uh, we can always try and put things into context afterwards. Um, to give you a little bit of context, though, I don't know, can we just... Just, just to place um, the whole research in the context. In other words, why, why, why does it matter? Why, why do I think it matters to do this kind of research? Um, there's been a history worldwide of countries trying to transform their former state broadcaster um, post-democratization um, in order to, you know, aid democracy and, and the, the transitional process and democratic consolidation. And that history hasn't been a very happy one. Um, it's happened especially in Eastern and Central Europe. Um, countries like Russia, Poland, Bulgaria, Lithuania, Romania, Ukraine and the Czech Republic and others. And quite a bit of research has been done on that. Um, and um, if I can quote Jakubowicz, um, the introduction of public service broadcasting in this area has either so far failed or it has produced very uncertain results. Um, so obviously there are huge challenges and, and big problems with trying to build a, a proper, I mean, that means a kind of a credible um, public broadcaster, an independent public broadcaster, um, with the kind of blueprint of the BBC, because this is obviously where the model is coming from. Um, it's also been tried, sort of tried, in Africa, because of the colonial history of the, you know, the British colonies. And effectively, in most African countries where this has been tried, um, these so-called public broadcasters are, you know, to all intents and purposes, state broadcasters. There are a few cases where they've got limited autonomy. Um, Kenya could probably fall into that category, um, and Namibia and Botswana. And very interesting is the case of South Africa, which is the one I'm looking at, because here the situation is really unclear. It's kind of the jury is still out, I would say, which makes it a very interesting case to study, um, because definitely, as I said, it hasn't failed yet, um, but it's got huge problems. Um, so it's interesting to look at you know, what worked and what didn't work in South Africa and what can we possibly learn from that experience that is still ongoing. Um, according to the literature, people who have studied these kind of transitions from state broadcasters to public broadcasters, there are four kind of things, four obstacles that really stand in the way of a successful transformation of that sort. Uh, the one is quite obvious, uh, political will. I mean, Russia is, is a pretty good case in point, I think. If, if, if the political elites, the new political elites, don't want it to happen, if they don't want an independent public broadcaster, it won't happen, you know, uh, for, for various reasons. It's quite obvious. Um, the second relates to this general issue of transplanting institutional models from one political, cultural, social context to another. Um, so this, you know, this, the, the blueprint for this, as I said, is the BBC, and the BBC has developed in a certain context, um, and to now suddenly transplant that model to, um, you know, an African country or an Eastern European country um, might be hugely problematic because the general population might not really buy into the idea, political elites might not really buy into the idea, um, so there might not be a broader societal consensus as to, you know, the potential value of this model and its role in, in building and supporting democracy. 
And the fourth issue is funding. Um, quite you know, straightforward, if, if a public broadcaster isn't funded properly, it, it won't be able to perform this kind of role. And then there are a few papers that I found, namely on Poland and South Korea, but really far and few in between, that mention the potential problem of journalists' attitudes. In other words, you know, looking at the actual journalists who work in these newsrooms, who come from the old era, um, you know, to a lot of them actually, who have survived and who are now supposed to be different kind of journalists, who are now supposed to ask critical questions when they were essentially propagandists in the past. And how does that influence the success or failure of this transitional process? It's, been, it's something that I think has been very much neglected in the literature, and it's something that I focus on. And I, so I look at it during the lens of organizational culture. And I'll tell you why this makes sense in the South African case. So basically what is around is a kind of perception that there is a kind of miracle that will happen if you try and build public, uh, public service broadcast. You've got your state broadcaster, and if you just change you know, pro uh, properly the institutional structure, the legal framework, and the funding model, then um, you know, the miracle will happen that if you change the structure, basically, you'll, you'll get your proper public broadcaster. Um, and South Africa is, I would say, the example that shows us that really it doesn't work like that. Even if you fulfill these kind of criteria, you still don't get a success story. So something else you know, must be wrong here, or not going right at least. To give you a bit of background on the SABC, the South African Broadcasting Corporation, it was founded in 1936, um, modeled very closely on the BBC. I mean, it was basically supposed to be a kind of a BBC in Africa. Um, and but, but with a purpose, really, of serving the whole population, but very compartmentalized kind of audience, compartmentalized along racial lines, so different messages for different parts of the population. Um, and it was essentially the voice of apartheid. So it, it was the voice of the, of the white minority regime. It was used as a political tool um, of, of you know, oppression. Uh, oppression. And then when the transition happened, kind of in the late 80s, early 90s in South Africa, the, you know, Nelson Mandela was released, the first democratic elections happening in 1994. Um, just before that, there was a widespread agreement that really the SABC should be independent um, because the, the, the stakes were high. You know, I mean, the country was at the brink of civil war um, and everybody knew kind of democratic elections were around the corner. And, no one, and everybody wanted to make sure that the SABC is actually independent and not on anyone's side because it was so powerful. It had access to the whole population, really. Um, so it was a watershed year in 1993 uh, when the SABC kind of became politically independent, so to speak. The proper institutional transformation happened later. Um, but, but that period, the post-election, uh, pre-election period, um, was very, very crucial. It is the biggest broadcast in Africa. It's quite a big operation. Um, it's got three TV channels. Um, at times there were two more, not at the moment, um, and 18 radio channels. It broadcasts in all the official 11 languages in South Africa. Um, and they've got more than two-thirds, um, far more than two-thirds of the national TV and radio audience. Um, there's pay TV, for example, and there are private radio stations, but there's only one private free-to-air TV station in the country. So in other words, if you're in rural areas, which the majority of the population lives in, you've got very limited access um, to alternative media. So the SABC is still hugely powerful. Um, the people who really have choice not a choice not to watch or listen to SABC live mostly in urban areas and are kind of middle class and can you know, have internet access and this kind of thing. But obviously South Africa is... Um, to a large extent a poor country. Um, the SABC is not a state broadcaster in disguise, so whatever I'm going to say in the next you know, half an hour, 45 minutes, um, 
and about politicization and political pressure and how it's handled, it's really on a subtle level. Um, and I think that's important to keep in mind. They've got huge problems, but we can't call them a state broadcaster at this point. Um, now, regarding to those obstacles I talked about before, what, what has been the case at the SABC? Well, one, there has been institutional continuity. So if we're talking about the transplantation uh, of institutions, it hasn't been really a problem in South Africa. You know, South Africans are used to having their public broadcast around. They're, they're buying into the idea. There's huge public support. There are you know, um, civil society organizations fighting for it. Everybody is all the time complaining about it. So there, there is really broad public buy in into the idea of public broadcasting. <clears throat> in terms of the political elites during the transition, and I would say even now, there, there is consensus that South Africa needs a public broadcaster because it's such a diverse and divided society and it needs something that brings people together, you know, the, I mean, basically kind of the public sphere idea. Um, the initial transformation in the 90s um, was, was a success, you know, it wasn't a success on all fronts, um, but it worked, it can't be considered a failure. Um, and there are legal guarantees in place, I mean, there are freedom of speech provisions, there's legal recourse if, recourse if journalists feel threatened or whatever. Um, so that side is also pretty much covered, and there are, you know, there are small issues around all of that and scandals here and there, but generally it's working. Um, in terms of the funding model, um, the SABC doesn't really depend on state funding, <coughs> or hasn't for most of, it, of, of its post-apartheid history, um, it, it basically depends on commercial funding, on ad revenue. It gets very limited state funding, and that state funding doesn't go into news and current affairs programming, which is what I'm interested in with regards to politicization. Um, it broke even, I think, in, in, in the early 2000s for the first time, so it was actually running a profit, which is quite unusual, I think, for a public broadcast in a, in a young democracy. Um, which caused a whole lot of other issues around commercialization and dumbing down of content and all of that. But in terms of politicization, I would say that's potentially a good thing because it limits government influence. Or at least it doesn't allow this kind of influence to happen easily. Now, there has been a crisis in recent years, a huge crisis at the SABC, which involved a funding crisis, which had to do with corruption, the international financial crisis, mismanagement and all of that. And the SABC had to be bailed out by government. So this situation isn't true at the moment. But what we know is that the broadcaster has the, the ability um, to function financially almost independently from government. Whether that's the best funding model is another question, but they can. When was the funding crisis? In? At 2009. So recent, okay. Yeah, they're trying to get out of it at the moment. They're paying back their, their loans. Um, and in terms of the, the kind of degrees of political pressure exerted on, on the SABC, um, it's difficult to measure, obviously, but I mean, I've studied this place since about 2004, um, and my sense, and I know, the, I know the German public broadcast, and I've done some work for the BBC, I don't know it well, but my sense is that there are no extraordinary levels of political pressure on the, B, uh, on the SABC. They are there, um, but they are there to the same way, basically, they are there, I think, at the BBC, at the Canadian broadcast, at the Australian broadcast, at the German public broadcast. I don't think there are unusual levels of, of political pressure, and it's, I think it's much more interesting to look at how that pressure is worked with, is managed, and is handled by the SABC. So all this looks pretty good, and, and if you look at this, and you look at the literature, you would think that actually the SABC, under these circumstances, should be, should be a success story, really. Um, but it can't be called that. It's not a failure, but it can't be called success. Um, there have been constant controversies. 
around the broadcast. So this is South Africa's favorite cartoonist, Piero, um, who could probably make a living just out of SABC cartoons. Um, I mean, this was one controversy about the, the Minister of Communications trying to get hold of the SABC and civil society rallying around it. And, you know, many, many problems. Um, there have constantly been accusations that top management are you know, giving in to political pressure, um, top executives being fired and saying no, they left of their own accord when it was kind of clearly in the perception of the public political. Um, always this issue of censorship and timidity. I mean, this example was about a program, a documentary on political satire. Um, during a period of <laughs> where tensions were really running high uh, within the ANC, I think at the time, different factions of the ANC, and, and the SABC also had commissioned the documentary but just didn't screen it, and it was, it was embarrassing. It went on over weeks and months, and eventually the whole thing was leaked and put on the internet, and it wasn't half as bad as everybody thought it would be. But I mean, this is what you know people think, how our decisions are being made at the SABC. Um, there's some empirical evidence. Um, in, in other words, how, you know, how, how independent are they or are they not? And again, it's difficult because there isn't a lot of data. There's some quantitative data, it's not my data, and some based on focus group and individual interview data in different years, which shows relatively consistently there is a kind of a slight bias. Um, but there is a bias, a measurable bias, usually towards the government of the day. So when Mbeki was president, it was towards Tabo Mbeki. When Zuma was president, it was towards Jacob Zuma. Um, a culture of officialdom and self-censorship, uh, generally pro-government bias, especially ahead of elections. Election coverage usually uh, is very much praised by everyone who kind of watches it. I mean, they really, they are up to scratch when it comes to the actual election coverage because there are a lot of rules that govern election coverage. You know, how much airtime you can, can you give to which party and all of that. They adhere to all of that and that usually works very well. The times in between are much more interesting. Um, accusations, well not accusations, there's data that they are kind of promoting government. Um, at the time, uh, sunshine journalism, which was officially called developmental journalism, which went along with the whole developmental state concept that was very much on walk um, at the time in government circles. So the kind of the, the SABC um, told the line there. Um, and then it kind of really heated up in about 2008 when, when there was a perception that the ANC might fall apart. Um, you know, I mean, Tabo Mbeki was ousted and, and a few of his followers kind of founded a new opposition party and everybody thought, ooh, you know, they said that the ANC could split. So it was the first time when really tensions were running high um, politically and the SABC got drawn into that. And then there's a very interesting study that was done around about 2009-2010, um, commissioned by SABC management. And it's put in grey here because the study is kept under wraps. Nobody can see it. Not even the board was given <laughs> the study. Okay, they, were, they got an executive summary and a short briefing. Uh, I mean, I spoke to people who have seen it, and, and they're very, very careful as to what to say. And I mean, I must say they gave me brilliant access for my research, but they didn't share the study with me. And that study is on public perceptions around credibility and accuracy compared to other media during that time. So right after that ANC leadership context, during the big crisis, so at a time where things really in the public eye were deteriorating quite rapidly. And from all I know, and I've been kind of told between the lines, is that that data shows that very clearly that they've lost credibility, um, massively so. Um, but I don't have the data. So yet, I'm still trying to bribe them, or not sure, but um, I can't pay the level of bribes required. Um, 
Just to give you a bit of background, what is the mandate of the SABC and what are, what's kind of the baseline we're talking about when we're talking about political independence and politicization? Um, well, one is the editorial and ethical code in its various versions. So 1994 was the first version. And then there's the actual public service mandate, which is laid out in the charter, um, which was kind of put into law in the 1999 Broadcasting Act. I'm just going to go through it quickly, really. Um, editorial independence, according to the editorial code, is a core value of the SABC. And that specifically relates to political, commercial, and personal influences. So they're quite specific in the ethical code as to what you know in independence means. Um, the code requires SABC staff to evaluate, to analyze, and to critically praise government policies and programs. It demands high standards of accuracy, of fairness, and of impartiality. And it uh, explicitly warns against, I mean, that is in the code, uh, suppressing facts, suppressing relevant available facts, or distorting by wrong or improper emphasis. Um, and then the public service mandate also says that SABC and C journalists are supposed to adhere to the highest standards of journalism, as well as fair coverage, impartiality, balance, and independence from government, commercial, and other interests. Um, so the code is really quite clear about it. Um, obviously, still it's difficult to measure quantitatively. Now, my question for today, and this is really this is part of my bigger research, but what I'm interested in today is what are the indicators and what are the effects of politicization with regard to journalistic practice, that is, newsroom practice, the process of news and current affairs production, right, at SABC News and Current Affairs. Um, and again, note that we are talking about all of this in, in the context of a statutorily independent and generally functional public broadcaster um, with no or very few obvious illegitimate violations of journalistic independence happening. So this is subtle stuff, um, also the stuff that is obviously difficult to measure. One word about um, what I understand and uh, uh, what, what, how I define politicization. I see it as a process. Uh, by which political agents successfully seek or are granted, because it's a two-way movement, influence in a statutorily independent organization to the extent that the political independence of that organization is compromised, which is then the product of politicization. Um, now, again, be careful. Um, this is not necessarily a linear or unidirectional process. And in other areas of my work, I look at how this has changed over time, different phases in the history of the institution, all of that. I'm not going to do that today. Um, and also, it's not necessarily problematic. I'm not saying that a public broadcaster must not be politicized in any way. There, there isn't a normative argument here. Um, but there are certainly varying degrees of politicization, so it can shift and change over time. And I'm interested in today, I'm interested in what happens when, this, when the organization becomes more politicized. And how can we see that happening in the organization? So the focus is on the process of journalistic production in news and in current affairs, in radio and in television. The focus is on political coverage, which I define broadly. So that's not just stories about politics. It may be stories about economic matters, so-called development stories in South Africa regarding to poverty and, and um, I don't know, access to the delivery of basic services like housing, education, and things like that. Um, it, it may be human interest stories, but anything kind of remotely linked to political stuff. I'm not interested in entertainment, educational programming, things like that. Um, I'm looking at this thing through the lens of organizational culture, as I said before. I'm not going to talk too much about it today, but just for you to kind of have it as background information. And 
and briefly organizational culture, what I mean by that is a set of shared beliefs, values, and practices. Um, I could say a lot more about that, but just briefly now. And also all the data that I've got here is, or most of it really, is based on perceptions from within. So a lot of that is in the public domain. There are you know, newspaper articles about it, and most of the research on the SABC relies on these newspaper articles, kind of you know, secondary sources. And I know they are there, but I had access to the institution, unprecedented access actually. Um, so I'm interested in how people within the, the organization perceive the process of politicization because this is at the end of the day what matters when people can make decisions because they do have the space to make decisions. You know how they construct a story, which stories they cover and so on. So perceptions of political pressure are hugely important, perhaps more so than you know what, what is there objectively speaking. Um, in terms of my methodology, I, I did some, or I do some content analysis, some you know, document analysis, but mainly it's ethnographic fieldwork. Um, based on semi or unstructured in-depth interviews with more than 100 SABC staff. Um, starting, I mean, from personal assistants, um, sound engineers, camera people, mostly reporters and editors, um, up to really the editor-in-chief and the board. Um, so I've, I really tried to cover the, the hierarchy pretty much completely. And these interviews usually last between an hour and if they're follow-up interviews, six hours per person. So we're probably looking at around about 500 hours of, of interview material. Um, What's I, the period in which you did this? Um, I did this between, if I, if I count all the, info, uh, all the data I have, between 2005, 2005 and 2011 mostly in 2011. Yeah. Um, and I did six months uh, of observation in seven SABC newsrooms in four of the South African provinces, and that was, that was done in 2010 and 2011. Um, so I really I had very good access, uh, which was great. Um, it took me a few years to negotiate that access, but they really let me do my stuff. Um, okay, methodology. Now, findings. Um, so we're talking about indicators and effects of politicization. One way of looking at it would be to look at how the process affects different levels of the hierarchy or how is politicization reflected on different levels of the hierarchy. And if we start from the top, in other words, um, the, the board um, and senior management, um, what we find here is, well, firstly, the obvious thing that you get political appointees on board level sometimes. I mean, the board is... Um, elected by parliament, appointed by the president, but since South Africa is a dominant party state where the ANC has had two-thirds majorities, basically, you know, and forever since it came into power, um, you can't, it's, it's almost impossible to make something like that into an independent process. It, it could be done better, um, but parliament just isn't, you know, really an independent institution um, that, that is distinct from government in that kind of context. Um, so we've got these kind of political appointees um, in some instances, it's sometimes more than, 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 than at other times. Um, but then what happens inside the organization? That's what I'm interested in. Well, you find when levels of politicizations are going up, um, you find an increased level of internal interference. Um, you'll find more instructions. So obviously the editor-in-chief has a right to instruct a person in the newsroom, but it's not normally done because the journalist is supposed to just go on with their work. Um, so in highly politicized periods, you will find that actually the kind of the, the CEO will phone the newsroom and instruct a journalist to do a specific thing. It's it's rare, but it happens, and that would be an indication. Um, and also, you can see it in the management style, kind of when when things are heating up at certain periods, you find that that managers tend to behave in a more authoritarian way. 
In other words, they are passing on the pressure. They, they feel they themselves are under. So certainly what happens kind of on that level is pressure gets kind of passed down the hierarchy. Um, then the middle management level. So those are kind of your, your editors, your, your executive producers, um, up to, you know, I would say almost the, the head of TV and, and radio news, um, or perhaps just underneath that level. Um, the most common thing I found was uh, what I called conflict and risk avoidance at that level. Um, because people are under pressure, they, they've got inner conflicts um, about you know, what to do or what not to do. Um, most of them kind of cave in and they become, it's a, it's a kind of paralysis that develops in, in various newsrooms. And you can study it in different ways in different newsrooms. Um, so you find that these editors become more receptive to pressure. And not necessarily pressure from outside the SCBC, but from inside the SCBC. So they'll tend to fight less with their boss, you know, to challenge instructions or whatever. They'll just kind of give up at some point. They will refer more upward. Now, the SCBC has a period of voluntary uh, upward referral, which basically means when you're not sure about a news decision, refer it upward and get advice from your boss, right? But you don't have to do that. But people tend to do it more. So they, they start running away from decisions, basically. They don't want to take responsibility for decisions anymore because they don't know what are going to be the consequences for those decisions. And then, of course, you've got a few individuals that will resist this, and they all display the opposite. So you'll find increased conflict between editors and managers, which sometimes results in people leaving, sometimes not. Um, but it obviously affects morale and things like that. And on the level of the journalists and reporters, um, you find increasing, um, increasingly incidences of self-censorship. Um, you find it in, in how they interview people, the kind of questions they ask their interviewers. Um, they might be suppressing some facts. Um, they might have scoops that they they don't suggest. They, they might even pass on scoops to, to to private media because they think they won't be able to get it out. Um, the SABC very often has has um, very good access to senior politicians, much more so than other media. So they they get access to information that other journalists don't get access to, but they might not necessarily put it on air. Um, journalists become more. Um, um, or the, uh, more careful in suggesting their own story ideas, or they might just stop suggesting stories, you know, if they're not forced to, and you also find it in their scripting, that their scripting changes. Or again, you've got some individuals who will actively resist that and put up fights in the newsroom, but it happens less and less the more, um, you know, kind of politicization takes hold, if you want to call it that. And formal hierarchy, just as a general observation, in, in those kind of periods becomes both more and less important. More important because kind of the lines of responsibility um, are kind of are more clear. So this kind of thing of upward referral and 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 uh, instructions happens more, but also becomes less important because if you are politically connected as a journalist, for example, you might go and kind of gang up with a senior manager, bypass the line manager in between, who knows that he's not politically connected. So these kind of informal hierarchies suddenly become a lot more important, and they can really undermine. Um, normal lines of, of responsibility. And that's a very interesting thing to look at. But that's just on the side. And then there are patterns emerging that now, I would argue, start shaping the culture in the long term, which then make it kind of difficult to reverse. Um, and these kind of patterns cluster around um, certain, well, newsroom practices, if you like. Um, and the first one I want to talk about is the whole issue of story selection. I mean, obviously, journalists kind of select stories out of a whole, you know, range of, of possible stories every day, and they've got different ways of means of doing so. Um, I mean, they get government press releases and all sorts of things, and they also come up with their own ideas. So what happens um, 
when when the SABC gets more politicized, is that increasingly you fall you you, call, you find what a lot of respondents called non-stories. They they're covering non-stories, which which everyone in the newsroom basically knows that these stories don't really have news value, but they get covered anyway. You know, the minister cutting a ribbon, uh, opening a thing. These kind of stories that you find in old you know in old dictatorships. These kind of this is why people don't watch state TV, right? Non-stories. So you find more and more of those you find that generally the reporting becomes more events-driven instead of issue-driven. Um, now, for the, for the non-journalists and people who don't know much about journalism in here, if there's anyone in here at all, I mean, there are two ways, really, of, 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 of covering things. Uh, one is to look at an event. So if you've got a press conference where the Minister of Health speaks about um, HIV, the new you know, government's uh, new HIV and AIDS policy in the South African context, obviously that's a hugely important topic there. Um, you can go there as a journalist and cover the press conference and write your script and say, today the minister spoke at a press conference and he told us A, B, and C about the government's new AIDS policy, right? Or you could go there and say, okay, this is about the 20th time the minister speaks at a press conference about HIV and AIDS, but we know that in our province we've got, you know, sky-high rates of AIDS orphans and this is what really matters to people here and therefore we're going to sit it out during the press conference, ask the minister afterwards, you know, what are you doing about AIDS orphans? And we're doing a story about AIDS orphans saying somewhere at the end, and the minister said that today in a press conference on HIV AIDS, right? That would be kind of an issue-driven coverage of that story. Now what happens is that shifts. The more the organization gets politicized, the less you find issue-driven reporting, even though it's in the kind of, the, the many, well, the editors want it, the senior editors are always saying this is what we must do, but it happens less and less. People are covering events more and more. In other words, the news get boring. And because of that, partially because of that self-generated stories, in other words, journalists who are just having a brilliant idea, this is what I want to do, I think it matters, right? They pitch their stories, they get crowded out. Um, they either get kind of canned from the word go, or journalists are being told, look, this is very interesting, but really just do the press conference today. You can do that some other day, right? And at some point, the journalist kind of gives up. Um, so this happens. And just to give you kind of a taste, because this is um, ethnographic data, um, but it's really just an illustration from a senior reporter in Durban. And she said the MEC of Transport, that's kind of a minister on provincial level in South Africa, the MEC of Transport in the province would open all these bridges and roads without fail. He would go to a toll plaza drinking tea there, and we would have to go and cover the story. We would sometimes take a decision here in the newsroom as editors and journalists that, it, that that is not a story. And we would discuss it with the editors at the head office in Johannesburg. And we would all agree that that is not a story. And first thing in the morning, you would get a phone call. Ach, you know, man, go and do it for peace sake. Right? So it shows you something about the kind of the internal tensions. And it wasn't necessarily the minister calling and saying, you must do this. But it's just people being tired of fighting all the time. So just kind of do it for me, please, you know? This is kind of how it happens. Um, another pattern emerges around how issues are reported. Um, and the one phenomenon, I mean, I call it spectator journalism because I really couldn't find a better name for it in the literature. Uh, when journalists kind of stop being thinking people in a way, and they, they, they perceive themselves to merely kind of be, be tools in the service of an information flow. Um, this, the classic kind of chronologist's role, right? We just report what happens, we don't think, we don't contextualize, we don't question. This is our role, it's completely safe, right? Whatever happens, we just report on it. 
Um, and that happens increasingly in those instances. Uh, you also get the other phenomenon of partisan journalism, of individual journalists with very strong identifications with a certain political party or a certain faction within that political party or simply just personal interests in terms of their own career, maybe political career they're thinking about, and they'll be trying to push a certain line. It usually doesn't go very far, but there have been instances in the last 17 years where it has appeared on air, you know, and, and people have noticed. Um, the other phenomenon you get increasingly is that um, these stories are all balance, because balance is in the policy. It's kind of like watching, um, you know, American television. Like all these stories, well, tend to be, usually, uh, pretty much balanced. But it doesn't mean that actually you're being told anything in that story, you know? I mean, you can report on an issue and then you get the opposition to comment or whatever. Um, but it's a kind of pro forma balance. It, it's, it's a balance to, 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 to cover up a real issue very often. Um, so you find, you find that kind of phenomenon. So in other words, um, we can have the, the, the government minister you know, praising themselves, whatever, as long as we get the official opposition party saying, we don't believe any of this, right? Then we've kind of done our job as journalists. So the kind of the role perception kind of changes in, in that respect. Um, and then there's, very interestingly so, I think a, a general avoidance of commentary. Um, there, there aren't really commentary slots you know, slots for proper commentary. Um, I'm not saying commentary as part of general news coverage at the SABC. But there's also nothing that says it mustn't be there. But there's also no desire of any of the journalists to, to comment, you know, to stand in front of a camera and, and make a commentary on a political issue. And I asked at the time um, the political editor about that, right? How come there are no commentaries on SABC bulletins? And he said, ish. That's the South African way of saying, damn, you really got me here, right? <laughs> Ash, it's never been there. We don't have opinions, you know? <laughs> Our duty is to reflect all sides. And he was very bitter about it. He comes from print, right? Uh, we want to please everyone. My editor used to say, if you want to say something, then get someone to say it for you. So we just end up acting as conveyor belts. He says, she says, he says, she says. That's the kind of journalism that most people are comfortable with at the SABC. Another area where you find patterns emerging are relations between the staff um, and the organization itself. Now, um, I'll try not to speak too long about it because essentially that was what my, my master's research was on. And I used, um, I don't know if, if anyone's familiar with Hirschman's concept of exit voice and loyalty coming out of market research. If people don't like a product, they can either voice their, you know, um, their, 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 their disapproval or they can cease buying the product, which is exit, or they can be loyal to the product. Same thing if, um, if you were in East Germany, right? You, you could voice to some extent your opposition or not really. You could exit or not really, or you could be loyal to the state. Um, now we've got the same when, when things kind of heat up in an organization at the SABC, when political pressure is increasing and people are not happy with it. Some people, some staff, they can voice their discontent, they can leave the organization or they can stay loyal to it. And uh, what I found in that context is that obviously when space is closing down in terms of political independence, there is less space for debate, right? So voice is, is kind of falls away to some extent then you will find independent staff leaving, uh, leaving. And that has happened at various periods um, in, in the post-apartheid period, sometimes more, sometimes less, which has consequences, of course. I mean, you know, it's a loss of skill. It's usually the more professional, kind of the, the more skillful people that leave. 
Um, and then people get promoted in the, into their positions, or they are being crowded out by people being promoted into their positions that are usually less competent, sometimes incompetent. Um, and that has consequences for the culture. Um, and a quote there on the right um, by the head of Radio News at the time, uh, who, just, who had just joined the organization in that position, and uh, not the organization, but in that position. Um, and he had already picked it up, and he again said very ironically, if you are independent here, we don't expect you to last, actually. We are looking forward to your departure, because it proves that you can't survive. So at those kind of times when it's, you know, when, when, when it's perceived by a lot of staff that politically it's difficult, it's getting difficult, then independent people are not even expected to last, which also means they don't get support, they don't get backed up um, when they stand up against authority. Uh, regarding loyalty, um, what you find, and one, could, one should really call it opportunistic loyalty because it's not value-based loyalty, is that uh, a lot of people, I would say a majority, a kind of silent majority at those times, will stay at the SABC. They won't leave. They might not have options or they might just not want to. But they start relating to the organization in a different way. Um, they start relating to it as a kind of mother, um, as a provider of uh, basically paychecks, pensions, perks, and publicity if you're a presenter. You know, mm -hmm. PR, it increases your kind of your personal publicity, it increases your market value. Um, so they basically try to get out of the organization what they can. And at, t at top level, that manifests as corruption. Yeah? At lower levels, it manifests in, in similar ways, as kind of opportunism, people moonlighting, people really not having any feelings about the employer or the public broadcasting mandate or the audience. Um, they'll have outside interests, they'll run their own PR agencies and, and stuff like that, and basically use the SABC as far as they can. And the head of TV news at the time told me, at the time where he felt this was really very much happening, he said, so people are more interested in the perks their jobs bring. If you are a manager at a certain level, you get a car allowance, you get parking, you get an office with a fridge. If you're not at a certain level, you don't get the fridge. If you are at a higher level, you travel, you travel business class. At a certain level, you stay in five-star hotels and you get a housing allowance. So that kind of tells you how, how people's kind of values um, change. And another part, a pattern you find is in the output. Now, I'm not, I'm not doing a lot of content analysis. You know, so this is, again, um, perceptions of how the journalists and the editors themselves feel about their own output, really. Um, and what happens is that stories become increasingly uncritical, um, no surprise, I guess, um, but also that um, there is very little context and analysis. Um, I referred to that earlier. There is sometimes, but that is rare, that's really quite rare um, in the SABC's post-apartheid history, an obvious bias in news coverage. It has happened uh, in the run-up to um, you know, the, the, the last national conference of the ANC with those internal factionalism going on. It, it was quite blatant there at times. Um, but it's not, it's not, a, it's not a thing that, that, were, that one could pick up easily, generally. A lot of people find their own coverage boring. I mean, that's not just my word, you know? It's kind of, if you watch it, you, you get sometimes the feeling that the bulletins are actually boring. And it's, it's got to do with this talking head phenomenon, right? I mean, three, four ministers in a bulletin of maybe five or six stories is just kind of boring. That's not television, right? Um, something, something that quote is referring to what can be touched, what is kind of perceived as a sensitive issue that one cannot maybe touch as an SABC journalist. Uh, the quote comes from a senior investigative TV journalist um, from the kind of the SABC's investigative flagship program that has you know, got a lot of trophies and awards and considerable freedom, actually. And she said, 
I've got scandals that I know about the president, but somehow there is no active effort really to pursue the story because somehow it's a known thing that we will never get away with it here, even though we are an investigative program. Maybe we just self-censor. Maybe it would be worth trying because actually we have done similar things and there was no fallout from anywhere. So again, it's a very, it's a very subtle thing. It's, it's decisions that people make on all levels of the hierarchy every day. It's not somebody you know, on top picking up a phone, kind of engineering this whole thing. So she's got a choice and, and she, she could see it herself. And then of course it has an influence, politicization has an influence on, uh, on, the, on the relationship between the organization and its audience. Now the SABC depends on its audience for ad revenue which again is, is a very good thing because that makes that forces them to think about their audience. They can't ignore their, their audience like state broadcasters can do. Um, and what we, happen, uh, what, what we find is um, the more the organization gets politicized, um, we'll find a drop in the quality of content, again perceptions, right? Um, which leads to a loss of credibility, very clear, you know, very, very clearly to be found in the public domain, uh, what newspapers write, opinion pieces and stuff like that. People always go on about that the SABC has no credibility. So there's a lot of public criticism, but it will also be reflected in the AR figures. In other words, audiences will leave at some point. They won't just take anything. Um, they do have a choice, even though it's a limited choice. And if that gets bad enough, it will be reflected in the revenue stream, in the SABC's, SABC's revenue stream, and that has happened in recent years, very clearly so. Now that example here relates to one of the public affairs radio stations, and what had happened here is that they had their morning show, which is kind of their flagship morning show, drive show, and they had two very strong and critical presenters on that show. Um, that had a lot of audience support and all of that. And the then head of news, for some reason that he never disclosed to me, didn't like these two presenters. He probably found them a little bit too critical, so he replaced them in quite an autocratic manner with, you know, one person who was extremely inexperienced and another person who was really pretty old. And I mean, they both don't ask critical questions. You know, they, they are very safe choices. And they lost about 40% of their audience share in about six months. Um, 40%, so it was huge. And I spoke to the head of Radio Current Affairs, who was basically the, the guy in charge of Radio Current Affairs, at the time before he got the official figures. So those are his perceptions before he actually knew the numbers of 40%. And he said to me, we are worried. We have presenters here who are not adding a lot of value to the program. He was diplomatic, right? And these are internal politics. They were just imposed on us. We have had people phoning, we've had people sending letters, some of them confronting us face to face saying we're not going to listen to that program anymore. We definitely are going to lose a lot of listeners. Pressure groups and interest groups have told us and journalists in our own office are no more listening to the show because of the poor quality of the presentation. So he, he can't do anything? Well, he wasn't because he was instructed by his boss. And eventually, I mean, about, I think, seven or eight months later, the boss realized that he was harming the program and the reputation of the organization, and, and they got the old presenters back now. But um, partially, I think, one of them got them back. Um, so it kind of it was corrected, but it took a long time, and it did a lot of damage in the process. And then there are consequences for the newsroom environment in general. Um, and this kind of ties more in with the organizational culture bit and kind of long-term damages that are done in even brief periods of increased politicization when, when political tensions are kind of heating up in the political sphere. 
Um, so what we find is a gradual kind of loss of initiative, motivation and creativity on the part of journalists especially. And I mean obviously journalists are creative people and, and when you shut down their creativity they are kind of they become clerks essentially and, and you certainly won't get a very good journalistic product at the end of the day. Morale suffers and and what develops is a kind of what I call kind of an anti task culture really. So people lose sight of why they are there, people lose sight of their audience, people lose sight of purpose really. You know, it's kind of I come to an office, it's a job like any other job. And I don't care anymore as long as I get paid. And the moment, you know, an option presents to me I'll leave. And I go to greener pastures. And at that stage almost every pasture is greener than, you know, the one you've got. Um, but also um, increasingly resistance to change because obviously people have tried to arrest these kind of movements and reverse them and it's never really worked. So people are very disillusioned with any kind of attempt to change things. Um, which is the quote there on, at the bottom, a senior TV reporter in Cape Town, I asked him, um, that was just after a new board has come into office that was perceived widely as a very credible and good board, the first of you know, for a long time. And I asked him whether he hopes that things might change now. And he said, and he was kind of very, I mean, you should have seen his facial expression, <laughs> told you more than the words. But he said, you see, the more we change, the more we stay the same. Or it's getting worse. So there was kind of no hope whatsoever. I, I was very upbeat at the time watching the organization, but I wasn't in there. He was in there, and a lot of other people as well. He had been with them 25 years or something. And the other quote regards to, to morale, um, a senior TV reporter in the Johannesburg newsroom, she said, if people are demoralized, it clearly shows in how they work. It shows in their enthusiasm, in how they work, in how they work in, the, in, the, in the team. In this job, you can't hide away in an office and be miserable because you hate where you work. You start venting. It shows in your work. This is our biggest challenge. Even camera people told me that. I mean, I had a video editor telling me that he can tell, he can kind of assess the level of morale in the office by the pictures that the camera people bring home. He can tell and what, what's the mood of the camera person at a particular day, because he knows them so well, right? Um, and you can trace these things over years, it's quite, it's quite interesting. Right, uh, coming to the end, running out of time as well, just generally a few kind of other findings that I could expand more on if, if you want to. As I said before, there is political pressure, but then there's also response to pressure. And I think it's much, much more interesting and fruitful to look at how pressure is responded to. So in other words, the whole notion of reality versus perception when it comes to politicization. The second thing is that um, there is obviously, I didn't talk about the old SABC, but the old SABC was a propaganda machine, really. People were tightly controlled. And there has been a lot of continuity in terms of staff. Uh, some staff have left but a lot of the staff have stayed. So you find a lot of people, both black and white, who have been at the organization for 25, for 30 years. So they've seen all of this. Um, and there's certainly, during this periods of increased politicization, we cannot ignore that, that it's very easy for the organization to kind of slide back in a culture that it's been familiar with in the past. So this whole phenomenon of quiescence in the face of power is really, in terms of organizational culture, it's a familiar coping mechanism when people are under pressure, when they get anxious and they try and find containment and safety. Um, they, they will more easily revert back to a culture that's familiar to them. Happens with any organization, which is why change in any organization is a challenge and difficult. But in this case, it's kind of, it's clearly visible and, visible and there's always this kind of danger of sliding back into this kind of complacent mindset. Um, 
And lastly, to, to reverse these kind of things um, for senior managers, for example, um, it's possible, but it is really it's difficult and because of this kind of entrenched, conservative, passive um, change-resistant culture that I just talked about. And I think this is it. Thank you. Thank you.